The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, we're taking a a break from our uh, preaching series through the book of Matthew, just one week. Here to kind of usher in the new year, considering these words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 1016, if you're using the Pew Bible, if that helps you find it. 1 Peter chapter 4, I invite you to listen carefully and worship God by giving, indeed, reverence and careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry." With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's seek his help as we look to his word together. Let's pray. The grass withers and the flower falls, but it's your word, O Lord, which endures forever and ever. As a new year begins, we're so blessed to be uniting as your people around that word. We confess this morning our great need of your help, your spirit. Please come and work in our hearts. O God, that we might receive these words in true faith, would you open up our eyes that we might behold the grace and the glory of our Savior, and that our trust this morning might be holy in him, and that we might embrace him afresh, that we might believe and that we might obey all that you would have to teach us this morning. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's happened again. The ball has dropped. Thinking of the, uh, the famous dropping of the ball in uh, Times Square in New York City. Not that I saw it myself. I think it's been years since I was young enough to try to make it a practice to actually stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve. You see, the nice thing when I lived in California was that you could watch it at 9 o'clock because of the time difference. You could welcome in the new year and enjoy all of the festivities and still be in bed before 10 o'clock if you wanted to. But what an event 
to think that some million-plus people try to crowd in the streets all to get a glimpse of it, millions more tuning in throughout the nation, and they say a billion-plus throughout the world watching this one event, bidding a collective farewell to the departing year, welcoming in the new year. In many ways, what a wonderfully festive and beautiful event, isn't it? But on another level, we might stop and ask the question, Really, what is the point of it all? I mean, from the the secular, unbelieving perspective which pervades our society these days, what are we celebrating anyway? Are we we pretending that we've accomplished some great thing simply because we've lived long enough to come to the end of another year? Have we made progress toward the attainment of some transcendent goal? For many, the, the New Year is a time of of adopting New Year's resolutions, right? Trying to improve their lives in different ways. But again, one must ask the question, why? What is the ultimate purpose? For others, I suppose, they they readily admit there is no purpose. The passage of another year simply brings us one year closer to the grave. But, they reason, we might as well enjoy it while we're here, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And hey, New Year's Eve brings one more opportunity to go out and party. As Christians, of course, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong to go to parties and to celebrate together, and it's certainly not wrong to adopt New Year's resolutions. Indeed, I think the New Year is is a great opportunity for us as Christians to remember that we are the ones who've been given reason to celebrate, to celebrate each year that passes, and therefore to resolve, yes, to live better lives, but not of ourselves and not for ourselves. Our passage this morning reminds us so well that that it's from Christ and it's through Christ and is unto Christ. Let the opportunity, or or let the new year be for us a wonderful opportunity to, to think about our calling in Christ Jesus. What is that to which Christ calls us? We could describe it many ways. Looking at our text this morning, let me suggest that we can describe it very simply, my sermon title, Arm Yourselves for the End. As those who have been called out of our sins into fellowship with Christ, he calls us this morning to arm ourselves for the end. And so we're called to arm ourselves, verse 1, kind of like soldiers taking up our arms. And why? Because of the end, because of the time. Christ has brought us to, as verse 7 says, the end of all things. And so, Christian, arm yourselves for the end. That's our message this morning. I have two, just two main points. We're going to think about the fact that Christ has indeed brought us to the very end of time, and we're going to think about our duty then to arm ourselves. So our first point, that Christ has brought us to the end, that is a wonderful truth we do well to allow to, just, to grip our hearts afresh here at the, the, the end of a year and the beginning of a new year. Christ has brought us to the end. And as we look at our text this morning, we really see two events which we we can say mark the end. Clearly, Peter's reminding the believers of the end end, that is the consummation, the second coming, the return of Christ from heaven in glory. Verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. And we see two verses earlier there in verse 5 that he He writes about how the Lord is ready to judge the living 
and the dead. But Peter's also thinking of another event, isn't he? The event which we we might call the the beginning of the end. That's the, the first coming of Christ when he came in order to go to the cross. When he came, as verse 1 says, to suffer in the flesh. It's already happened. And notice in, in that verse that Peter wanted the believers to see that event as an event which marked the end, the end of sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin or has finished with sin. We might ask the question, is, is that there a description of the believer in Christ or is that a description of Christ himself? And of course, the answer is yes, it's both. This is a passage which speaks so wonderfully to who Christ is and what he has done, but it also speaks to who we are in Christ. It speaks of our union with the Lord Jesus and so primarily and fundamentally, it speaks to that, the, that event of Christ's death by which sin has been stopped or finished. You might use the language of Hebrews, which says that sin has been put away. Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, verse 26. And he will come again. Two verses later, it says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so on the, on the one hand, we eagerly, we wait for that great day, the second coming of Christ, the end of all things. And yet, on the other hand, we understand that it has already begun. And this is the beauty. This is the the wondrous mystery of the time, the the place in history, redemptive history to which Christ has brought us. What a marvelous thing to to ponder here. Just think in a Lord's Day, which in God's providence takes place on the first day of a new year. We know, we know that sin will be no more. Indeed, this whole sin-cursed world will be judged and done away with, destroyed completely, and a new world will begin. We know it's true because it's already happened in Christ himself, in his death and resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come. And even though it has not yet come in all of its fullness, it's nonetheless true. We feel that tension, eschatological tension between the already and the not yet, and even though we struggle to understand it, to comprehend it, to wrap our, our finite brains around it, we glory in it. And this morning, the Lord calls us to, to glory in it and to see it as, as something that is objectively true. It's true not on the basis of how we might be feeling today, not even true in terms of how we've conducted ourselves recently, in terms of our Christian conduct. We might think of it this way. It is objectively true that we are no longer in the year 2022. You may not feel any different than you felt 12 hours ago or whenever it was, but that doesn't matter. It is objectively true. I don't know, perhaps perhaps one of the reasons people like so much actually to be able to see the ball drop in Times Square is maybe it gives them something, something tangible to look at, to feel like they're really participating in something that's, that's truly happened. Time is, is new. It's changing. Well, Christian, uh, this morning God has, has given you and me, he's given us something far, far greater than a ball 
dropping down a flagpole. He's given you a Savior who by his death and resurrection has brought sin to an end. Of course, the the work of Christ does more than simply uh, to, to serve to mark the change. Christ affects the change. Jesus is the change. The world may not care to tune in, as it were, and pay any attention to Christ or or what he's done. But for you and me this morning, he's everything. He's everything to us. He is the end of the old. He is the beginning of the new, I hope and pray that that's true for everyone listening here this morning. I wonder if there are any with us this morning who've never trusted Christ, never truly committed your lives to him. If you've never done so, I would urge you this morning to, to feel, feel the urgency of the word before us. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. That's true, and the, the, the uh, completion of one year and beginning of a new one brings you even closer to it. Soon, Christ will appear. Soon, you will, you will have to stand before him. You'll have to, as it says in verse 5, have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And friends, that will not be a good day unless, unless you've come to him, you've embraced him by faith, you've, you've received him as your Savior, your Lord. And to think this morning, graciously, he invites you to do just that. He invites you to, to trust that when he died to put an end to sin, he put an end to your sin. He died for your sins. For all who trust in him, the judgment day has already passed For us, Christ has come and he has endured the internal judgment himself when he suffered in the flesh. In him, as as believers in Christ, we are dead and gone. We are done away with in terms of our identity in this world of sin and rebellion, which is under judgment. If you're in Christ, the old you is gone Forever, You have a new identity. It's an identity in Christ and that new world, that world of, of life in the Spirit. Indeed, that new life in the Spirit, that that continues even when we die. And I think that seems to be the point that Peter's making in verse 6 of our text where he speaks of believers who had died, that the gospel was preached to them and they believed, yet they died. Perhaps they even suffered martyrdom. Peter was addressing believers here who were, were suffering, suffering persecution. So I think, think that when he writes that they were judged in the flesh the way people are, he's referring to the fact that they, they simply died, as all people do. In their, in their body, they, they suffered the wages of sin, which is death. Perhaps this even became an occasion for the unbelievers to mock their hope of eternal life, to mock their faith. They were judged by the world. But in God's eyes, they were vindicated. They were yet alive in the Spirit. They were alive every bit as much as as God himself is alive. And why is that? It was because before they ever even tasted death, the end had already come. Christ had put an end to sin. They had died to the old. They were alive to the new, alive forevermore in Christ by the Spirit. And Christian, the same is true of you today. That is your story, your reality. And if there is any unbeliever here this morning, the same can be true of you if you would but trust trust in the Lord Jesus this day. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if here today on this Lord's Day, the first day of a new year, would mark the, the, the end of the old and the beginning of the new for many Christians? Let's pray for that. Pray that it might happen even here in our midst and that indeed throughout the earth there might be many, many who would trust Christ and come and, and find new life in him. And that they would join us then in, in the battle, the call to arm ourselves. That brings us to our second and last point this morning. Arm yourselves for the end. This is a, a call to fight in view of the end, in view of what Christ has done. He's the one who armed himself, the great conquering warrior who, who by his victory over sin has brought him to an end. He's, he, he calls us to do likewise in view of the end end, his imminent, imminent return to consummate his victory. In view of all this, we are to arm ourselves. We are to see ourselves as soldiers who are taking up our arms and we are going into battle. And what are our arms? What is our weaponry? What is our, our armor? Verse 1, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. In union with Christ, we are to think as he thought. To use uh, Paul's language, we might say, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16 or Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. This is your mind in Christ Jesus. Arm yourselves with his thinking regarding time, with, with that which was Christ's thinking when he effected this, this change in time. Note that we're to, we're to see a contrast between the time that is past, verse 3, and the rest of time, verse 2. And just note what Peter says here in exhorting these believers to turn from their sin and unto holiness. We have quite a graphic description of what their lives had been like. The believers to whom Peter was, was uh, writing the, the, this letter. Many of them had been converted out of grossly immoral, rank pagan lifestyles. He reminds them of, of how they lived like the Gentiles, uh, sinful human passions. Note the description in verse 3. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And it's interesting what he writes here. He writes, the time that is past suffices appreciate the way he puts this there. You know, it doesn't, doesn't beat them up for their sins. How could you have ever done that? You should be ashamed of yourselves for the way that you used to live. We know that on one level, past sins are a source of shame for believers. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans 6.21 when he asks, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? But note that here Peter basically says, the time that you spent living that way it's enough. Kind of ironic. You can imagine thinking, yeah, yeah, I would say so. You know, we might, we might think back upon our own lives to the times when we've committed terrible sin. I think back on maybe, maybe one particular sin or maybe a pattern of sin in which you once gave yourself. Perhaps it wasn't the kind of rank paganism, gross immorality like is described here. Perhaps it's more in the category of of what Jerry Bridges would call the respectable sins, if you're familiar with his book, The Respectable Sins. But no matter, you know it's sin, and and you're ashamed of it. Well, do you wish you could go back and repeat it? You know, such such fond memories of my days living as as a slave to this or that sin. Do we think that way about our sin? 
Do we think that way about our past lives without Christ? Well, of course not. You can imagine that the believers are hearing these words from Peter and thinking, I wish I could erase it from history. Well, let it encourage you. Let it, let it empower you unto to, 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 uh, to empower you into strength in the battle this, this, this new year. Let it arm you to remember the way that Christ deals so kindly and so gently with you. He doesn't throw your past sins back in your face, but he does say it's enough. It's enough. Your, your living in sin is enough. Do not return to those former ways. Live your new life in Christ. And do so even though you're suffering for it. We see in verse 4 that the, the believers were being persecuted because of their holy lifestyle in contrast with the world. It, it surprised the world when they did not join them, when they did not join the world in their sin. And so they were even maligned for it. To, to, to arm yourself with the mind of Christ is to be ready to suffer, to be ready to be hated by the world the way Jesus was. What did Jesus Tell his disciples in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so we're to, we are to be ready to face that hatred, and we're to be ready to face that hatred knowing that whatever we face is nothing, to be, nothing in terms of comparing it with what they will endure. Their hatred is not directed at us Ultimately, it's directed at the Lord. It's directed at the very Christ who is ready to come and judge the living and the dead. They will have to face him, and it will be soon. Again, the end of all things is at hand. Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. Be armed with his mind. To be armed with his mind is to understand the nearness of the time. Romans 13.11 says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And note verse 7, how those who so understand the time are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You know, what a contrast between what so often the world's approach to time. We wonder how many of those who were gathered to see the big ball drop, they were drunk as they were watching the big ball uh, drop. For many, that, that's the way to pass the time, right? Party it up. Forget about everything. Forget about all of your, your problems. Put everything out of your mind, past and future. Don't think about it. Just live for the moment. Just have fun. Uh, for, for the Christian, it's the opposite, you know? Is it not that there's never any place for, for saying, I'm just going to take a break from thinking about this or that at the moment. But, but, but we, don't, we don't lose control. We don't, we don't live our lives losing control of our minds. We, we know that the passing of time, the passing of time which brings us closer and closer to seeing the Lord, that moves us to, unto self-control and sober-mindedness. It's not just... Not just literal drunkenness versus sobriety, which is in view here, though that's particularly included here, but this speaks more generally to an attitude. One commentator describes it as as the attitude of mind that is the opposite of drunken stupor or delusion. Sobriety means watchful waiting for the Lord's return. 
one way to describe it, it's, it, 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 it speaks to the kind of clear thinking which is conducive to prayer. Notice that in verse 7, the end of the verse. Peter writes, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know, why should you keep awake? Why should you keep alert with a clear mind so that you can pray? You might recall how Peter learned from his own failure at this point. Think back to that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord told the disciples to, to watch with him, right? Watch and pray. Uh, it, it was Christ who, it turned out, did all of the watching and all of the praying, pouring out his heart to the Lord and purposing, uh, resolving in his heart to, to, to complete the work that God gave him to do. What did the other disciples do? They slept. They fell asleep. And so Peter had learned of his need of the grace of Christ. He had learned of his need of that sober-minded prayerfulness which characterizes those who are armed with the mind of Christ and the love of Christ. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers, over, covers a multitude of sins. And then verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, there's, there's Christ-mindedness put into practice, in action. There's, there's Christ-minded living. Why did Christ put an end to sin? Because he loved us. He loved us, and he came not to magnify our sins, but to cover them over, and he calls us to do the same for one another. And Christ received us, and so we are to receive one another joyfully. A great way to do that is to receive one another into our homes, the practice of hospitality. And every passing day brings us closer and closer to that great day of hospitality, the day when we will be received into our, our eternal home. Christ will, will lavish upon us all of his love as he welcomes us into his presence as we inherit the kingdom of glory. That should make us all the more fervent in our zeal to welcome one another. Peter was commending this as a way for, for the believers to help each other, to endure the persecution that they were facing. We live in a world with those who are lost, those who are angry with and hateful towards God. And as time continues, as we come closer and closer to that great day, it's not going to go away. If anything, it will only intensify in the way that it's expressed against God's people. And so how shall we endure? Well, by being secure in the love of Christ. Christ loves us. And being secure and in, 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 in seeing that, as a, that he will preserve us in his love as we love one another with his love. As we arm ourselves with, with his mind, we are to love one another with his love. And it's all by his grace. Notice lastly, briefly, in verses 10 and 11, we're reminded that we are, we are to serve one another as stewards of God's grace. It is with the gifts that God gives. This idea of, of gift stewardship also very much brings into view the end of all things. Think about how our, our Lord taught his disciples to uh, uh, that, that, that parable about the, the master who, uh, he, he, uh, who uh, he taught them about the kingdom of heaven by teaching them about the master who entrusts those talents to his servants. He, he entrusts his property to his servants. And so the, 
the uh, Christian discipleship involves the faithful exercise of the stewardship of our master's property, knowing that one day what will happen? The master is coming. He's coming again. He will return. We know not the day or the hour, but he is coming. And so we are called to be faithful stewards of his property, such that one day we look forward to hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So Peter tells us that that each has received a gift. Every believer has been given a gift and has been given that gift for the purpose of serving and building up the body of Christ. Peter doesn't go into great detail here listing all of the gifts. He just gives two broad categories. There are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. And those who speak are to speak not their own ideas. They're to speak only that which is from God, the very oracles of God. And those who serve are to do so not out of their own resources, but out of the strength that God supplies. And why? For what purpose? Notice how our text concludes with Peter giving that that chief purpose. Here's our transcendent goal, Christian, the glory of God. We we have have, uh, plenty of goals we might make as we even look at our text. We have plenty of New Year's resolutions we could adopt right here from our text. In union with the Lord Jesus, let this be a year in which we purpose afresh to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to do so by battling against sin, putting an end to sin in our lives as Christ did. And let us do so being willing to be hated by the world as Jesus was. And let us live self-controlled and sober-minded lives full of prayer. There's a good New Year's resolution, right? Purpose afresh to devote yourself to prayer, as did Jesus. And to love one another with the, the gracious sin-covering love with which Christ has loved us. And let us joyfully exercise hospitality. It means as God has gifted us in every way, as he enables us, let us receive one another as Christ has received us. And by his grace, let us do all these things faithfully, making use of the gifts which he has given us. But let us do so not, not for the purpose of pleasing ourselves, not for seeking our own glory, as it is in the case of so many who live without any hope beyond watching the big ball drop in New York City at the end of another year. No, let us purpose afresh to make it our grand new, our grand new Year's resolution to, 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 to set the glory of Christ chief in our hearts. And so let us live our lives longing for that day when, when we will see his glory. When Christ will come again in all of his glory, when he will appear not, not merely to be seen by a, a, a mere billion plus, but by every eye, there's the great event which we live for. To think that all of the peoples of all of the earth will all behold his glory unto that great purpose with which uh, Peter concludes our text this morning. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. And uh, indeed, God will be glorified. He will be glorified even as all is brought to an end and this world is no more and, and that new world is revealed wherein he, 
He dwells in all of his glory, that world wherein dwells righteousness, where to him indeed will be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's look to that day and let's live our lives longing for it and walk in a manner worthy of that hope. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. And Lord, indeed, Lord, we pray that you would help us. May it be so in our lives. To that end, we pray, O oh Lord, that on this day and in this new year, you might so fill us with your word. O oh Lord, may we lay hold of that to which you've called us in Christ Jesus. Grant that we might know more fully the reality of him dwelling in our hearts by faith and enabling us, yes, to die to ourselves and to live unto him, our blessed Savior. For we ask for this in his name. Amen.